Welcome again to River Valley Community Church. Uh, thank you, Ted and Tep. I don't know if they mentioned this, but uh, you know, sometimes Sundays just don't go as planned. Uh, there's a lot of other people who are supposed to be up here, but uh, Tommy went to the emergency room, is that correct? Or the hospital? Clinic. Clinic uh, with some pain, maybe kidney stones. So we can be praying for Tommy. So Inez is with him, of course. And so, um, you yep. uh, the punches, as you will and still leading us uh, beautifully in, in worship. So we're going to continue our journey through the book of Acts. And today we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, so you can be preparing yourself, look, at, look it up in your Bible if you, if you so wish. Um, and this is, we're going to be looking at actually the vision that I would argue changes the world. That what happens in Acts 10, Acts 10 changes how the nature of the Christian church, it changes actually the future of the world. And so we see uh, some monumental shifts happening in that book. And so we're going to read the whole chapter 10. And so we're going to start out by reading the Word of God and seeing what He has for us. And this is a longer section, but it's one story, and that's why we're reading it together. And so we can get this whole story together and see what, how God is moving through this. And so Acts chapter 10, it starts like this. At Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter, he is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, who is held from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by, uh, by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason you are, you're, for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was, was saved. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, as they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up! I too am a, am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and, and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. 
But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I sent for, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for him at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by all you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, proclaiming good to all of Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And he, we are witnesses to, of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Where we can read it, we can see how you've moved throughout history, how you've expanded your church. And so, Lord, as we ponder and we look at it, that you bring it to life in our, in our mind, in our hearts, that we can know you. We can know your great salvation through Jesus Christ, and we can know how you've worked through history, but we also we can know how you're working right now in this church, in us as well. So I pray that you uh, teach us what we need to be taught, that you show us what we need to be we, uh, we need to see that you grow us in the ways we need to grow, Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Traditions have power. Traditions are important. We can do a little experiment. I can say, the Lord be with you. There we go. Don't feel awkward if you don't know the response. That shows what traditions do. That some people grew up in churches where people would say, the Lord be with you, and everyone would respond, and also with you, or something along those lines. Others of us did not grow up. I did not grow up in that tradition. I did not grow up saying that. And so, but it shows the, the, what traditions do. They separate. They catalog. They, they show people who follow those traditions and people who don't follow those traditions. And so we shouldn't feel awkward about that. It's just the fact that traditions have that power. They're those boundary markers of identity that people can know, oh, wait, they're of my tribe, or oh, wait, they're of some other different group. And so that's what traditions do. But because traditions, can't they? Just imagine the newlywed care, uh, uh, family, newlywed couple, as they bring in two family traditions together, and they struggle with, wait, whose tradition is more valuable, or whose tradition do we follow? 
There could be some tension there because it's hard to let go of these things that give us so much identity. Well, when we read Acts 10, what we read is actually a fundamental shift and a tradition that's even more deeper than a family tradition or anything like that. It's a tradition that God gave the Jewish people that we now see Peter struggling with this shift on how he needs to process what it means to be in God's family, what it means to be part of God's people. So we see this fundamental shift happening in Acts 10. So we can ask our question, what is happening <coughs> in Acts 10 as we read this? Well, let's just look what's happening. Is We're introduced to this guy named Cornelius, and he's a centurion of the Italian cohort. He's a Roman soldier. So he's basically in charge of about 100 soldiers. So he's a captain in the Roman army. But he was different than the other Romans. He was a God-fearing man, which means that he most likely was leaning towards and listening to the Jewish people and learning about who their God was and believing in that God. And he was, he was honoring that God by giving alms to people who needed help. And he probably was a t- I mean, he had yet, he not yet converted to Judaism, but he was grow, being pointed towards God by the Jewish faith. And he was growing in that way. And it says that, in the ninth hour, about 3 p.m., he was praying. This is a traditional time of Jewish prayer. He was praying, and an angel shows up and says, hey, send men to Joppa. It's about 30 miles to the south. And as we ended last week, we know Peter is down in Joppa doing God's work. And so this, this angel appears to uh, Cornelius and says, go send men down to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, back. And so he, raises, he, he uh, stops praying and goes and sends his men, two servants and one soldier, to go and see if Peter would come back to him. Meanwhile, at the same time this is happening, when these guys are traveling, Peter is, is up on the rooftop where he's staying with Sam, uh, Simon the Tanner by the sea, and he starts praying around lunchtime. It's, it says, you know, the third hour, it says around noon. He's hungry. They're preparing lunch for him. He might be getting a little hangry. And so he's uh, waiting for that, and he falls into a trance, and he sees this vision from the Lord. As it's descending, the sheet descending, filled with all these animals. All these animals that the Jewish people are not allowed to eat. The voice in this vision saying, rise, go and kill and eat. Peter's struggling. He's perplexed. He's like, I'm a faithful Jew. I, I follow those boundary markers of the dietary laws. I would never do this. But yet the voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. This happens three times, probably to drive home the point of what is going on. And right when this vision ends, when he's still trying to process what's going to happen, is when the servants and soldiers show up from Cornelius and say, hey, we're told to bring you back. And they tell him what happened. He's like, oh, this makes sense. And the Spirit tells him, go with this man before I sent them. And so he journeys back. And what he encounters is a household filled with Gentiles, people not of Jewish descent, people who do not know God through the Jewish faith, a household filled with Gentiles who are prepped and prepared to hear the gospel. I love the line when Cornelius explains what's happening. He's like, and now we're all gathered, so what do you got? Is basically what he's saying. He sets it up. It's like, come on, what does God have for us? And so Peter steps up to the plate and he declares the gospel of Jesus Christ to these Gentiles. 
and they come and believe in Jesus, and so they are filled with the Holy Spirit. What we have here is into the Gentiles for the very first time. We see it kind of edging that way. We see it kind of moving that direction as first it now goes down to Samaria, which are people kind of like Jews. They're half Jews. And so it's, it's, it's crossing that boundary marker, but they still knew God through Abraham. They still knew who God was as that cultural boundary marker. They probably still followed a lot of those same laws. And then we see it pushing a little further to the to the uh, Ethiopian uh, eunuch, and we see how it's pushing that, but he still was a uh, proselyte. He at least was a proselyte. He might have even been Jewish by descent, but he was still in that camp. But now it's clear-cut. The gospel is expanding beyond those cultural barriers that had once uh, uh, held it, that had once controlled it. And now people who are not of Jewish descent are hearing the gospel and coming to know who Christ is. I love this story because we see this amazing fact that God is dovetailing what he's doing in Cornelius' life with Peter's life. They line up perfectly. He sets them up where he sends messengers from Cornelius. They arrive just at the right time after Peter receives the vision when he's pondering what this means. And these messengers arrive to actually give context to what this means as the Spirit prompts him to go, that we see this amazing fact that even though they were 30 miles away, God was moving the gospel expand towards other people besides the Jewish faith. So what do we pull from this? What are you can summarize what we're supposed to pull from this with this? Gospel vision changes earthly perception. That when we know the gospel, when we see the gospel, when we see life and how we live through the lens and the tent of the gospel, of the gracious life and death of Jesus Christ that brings us into salvation, when we know it, it actually changes how we see the world. Our earthly perception changes. And we now see things through the gospel and how God would have us see things. Gospel vision changes earthly perception. At the crux of this whole message, or whole passage, I'll argue, is this vision that Peter sees while he was praying. <clears throat> it's a vision of that sheet full of all these unclean animals, where he's told to rise and eat. How he, he kind of says, hey, I, I, I can't do that, for I'm a faithful Jew. But yet God, through this vision, says, you know, what God has made co- uh, clean, do not call it common. We read this. And maybe you grew up in church and you heard it before. Maybe you're, you, you haven't, and you're like, I don't even understand what this means. We have to realize this is an earth-shattering vision for Peter. For one of the, the big cultural identity markers of the Jewish, they would not eat certain animals, and they would eat other animals. That one of the big boundary markers that distinguished the Jewish people from all the other people around them was this fact that there were some animals that they could eat, they could touch, they were raised, they could do sacrifices with, but then there were other animals that they weren't even they weren't supposed to eat and they couldn't even touch in some cases. The most famous examples, of course, are pigs and selfish, which makes for a sad existence, at least I would say, because they couldn't have bacon-wrapped shrimp. I mean, they couldn't. It's against their law. It was a boundary marker. They could not do that. But this all changes, and we can say thankfully, this all changes with this vision. I can't help but think when Peter is perplexed, as it says, and he's still pondering the vision when the messengers come, when he's struggling with this, I can't help but think Peter 
is really struggling with this vision because it seems counter everything he knows what it is to follow God. That this vision shows up, and he's struggling with this, and he has to wonder, is this kind of like Jesus when he was fasting and he's in the desert and the devil came up and tempted him? Is this kind of the same thing? And so he's like, am I just hungry? And the, and, and, and the enemy's using my hunger to tempt me to do things I'm not supposed to do? And maybe that's why it had to be shown to him three times. Follow through that, that convinced him that yeah, this fundamentally shifted how he viewed what it is to be a person of God or to be part of God's people. Because Peter immediately takes this and says, this is deeper than food. That this vision, while talking about food and what we eat, is deeper than that. Peter immediately takes it and says, no, yes, this is about our dietary laws and what these markers that make a Jew a Jew and what makes a Gentile a Gentile, but it's deeper than that. It's actually talking about people. It's talking about that God is now breaking down those markers of this is God's people because they have these external laws of how they eat and how they live, and these people are not. And God's like breaking down those so the gospel will not be hindered and can extend past that to include these Gentiles who before were excluded. That to come to know God, they had to come into the, the Jewish faith and then know God. And some of the church people were sorry, still thinking that way, that Gentiles should be reached because God said, we're going to go and be witnesses to all the world. And so Gentiles should come in to become Jews, and then they can know Jesus Christ. Well, what this vision is doing is saying, no, they actually can know Jesus and come in and know him and be fully members of God's people without first traveling the path of Judaism. As really is talking about <clears throat> is taking the focus off of those externals and putting the focus on Jesus Christ, who now marks us as his own. I love how John Stott, a, a pastor and commentary writer, says like this. He says, although the vision challenged the basic distinction between cleaning and unclean foods, which Peter had been brought up to make, the Spirit relayed this to the distinction between clean and unclean people and told him to stop making it that we see in Peter's own words when he arrives at Cornelius' house, he says that he is supposed to stop calling any man, any person, common or unclean, for God has made them all clean. We have to understand when we approach this text that there was a huge gap between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. There's a huge gap. Peter himself says that when he shows up at Cornelius' house. <coughs> he says that. He says, you guys know it's unlawful for me, a Jew, to even step foot in this Gentile house. That really, the Jewish people saw Gentile people just like they saw those unclean animals. They were unclean. I can't touch them. I can't associate with them. I would prefer not even to talk to them. That's how they saw it. And that's how they, they operated. And when we read that, we go, wow, that seems incredibly racist. How could that be? to people who were not God's people. It's because they had corrupted it, where God has said, this is my people, these are my markers, and it sets them apart from the world so that people can see me and know me, and hopefully people will be drawn to that and come to know me through them, and that anyone's welcome to come to my family and join in if they believe in me, that the Jewish people now had taken that and perverted it, and where they now look down upon everyone who's not Jewish and say, these dogs, these 
How dare they even think they can associate with us, for they are not God's people. That they're just like us. They take things that God makes good and make bad and twist them and make themselves feel superior. And so we, we have to know there's this huge gap that's earth-shattering now when Peter walks into a Gentile house and says, I am here to proclaim the gospel and see you guys as my brothers and sisters, that you are mine, my family. This vision changed all of those traditions of the law that the Jewish people had been following. Peter had been given a gospel vision, and it changed and challenged his earthly perception. That before, when he saw these traditional barriers, they were barriers to the spread gospel, but he knew he now could not make that distinction anymore. Unclean. Gospel vision changed earthly perception. And this vision impacted us as well. This has changed the early church actually has a real impact on us. First and foremost, we wouldn't be here without this vision. For as far as I know, everyone in this room is a Gentile. We are not of Jewish descent. Correct me if I'm wrong, you might be, but we're not of Jewish descent, meaning that according to this, according to the Jewish laws, we were staying on the outside, but this vision changes all that, takes all those boundaries down. It says there's no racial barrier for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now people are ushered in from every kingdom, from every nation, from every tug, from every tribe. And this is why the Christian church can go into any nation and proclaim the gospel of God because we don't bring that cultural baggage because the gospel transcends all those boundaries. And it brings people from every nation into his kingdom. It starts, we see that shift happening from this vision. It's always been God's plan, but now we see it being worked out because of this vision. As Peter walks in, and he declares the gospel. That's why it's relevant to us, but also has other implications for us. As we live, we like to put rules and regulations upon other people as well. And so when we read this, we can actually ask that question, why do Christians not follow the dietary laws of the Jewish people? If we say we're God's people, just like the Jewish people were, if we say we follow that, if we honor the Old Testament, which we do, and we believe it and we follow it, why do Christians not eat bacon-wrapped shrimp but gladly partake? Why, what has changed in us? Why do we not keep kosher? Jesus came and he said, I did not come to abolish the law, which included these dietary rules and regulations. I came to fulfill it. And so as Christians, we have to actually honestly ask, why do we not do that? Well, when we look at the law, the Old Testament law, we see that we, there's things we're supposed to follow because they're innate to humankind that God has laid on our hearts. We see a moral law, things that are to direct us in action, and we're still supposed to follow that and honor that as it's portrayed in the law of God. We see other things that are like civil laws that help give good guides to government and how we should negotiate and navigate uh, society life. And those are still good things that we should honor and look to and hopefully guide our society. But there are also things in the law there are more markers that separate the Jewish people from the Gentiles. 
that separates the Jewish in Christ because these markers no longer apply to people who now are no longer marked by these external regulations, but now are marked by Jesus Christ and being justified through him. And because these things are all to separate God's people from looking like the world around them or the nations around them, they, we now are not putting so much emphasis on those external markers. We now see how they're fulfilled through Jesus Christ and that we are known as his because we believe in him. <clears throat> we see this throughout the whole book of Acts, that the early church is struggling with this. We'll, we'll get through this in the next chapters as the early church is looking around and saying, now we're welcoming Gentiles in, but they're uncircumcised. They, haven't, they don't have the covenant marker of being God's people. How do we wrestle with that? Do they have to come through that covenant to know the new covenant through Jesus Christ? And we see them wrestling with that, and we see them wrestling with all these practices that, they, that they've traditionally done as God's people, and we see them processing through that of what it means to be a Christian. Do we have to be Jewish first? Well, we can just take one example of how they're working through this, and we see this in Colossians as Paul is writing. A Jew of a Jew. You know, he was Mr. Jew. He, was, he had all of his criteria of being the best Jewish boy he could be. But yet now he writes in Colossians to this church, drink with regard to a festival or to a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's arguing these external markers that we followed for so long have been fulfilled in Christ. The substance, the thing that matters is if you know Christ, if you have been justified by Christ. And these external markers, they can be good. They can be used for good things. And we should follow how, what we need to follow. <clears throat> but the, what, the substance of things is Jesus Christ. I like how one commentator put it like this. He said, Christians have the right to celebrate Christmas with Ham because Jesus brings an end to the division of Jews and Gentiles. And for that reason, an end to the old covenant fast. All food is clean. Enjoy your rattlesnake burrito, your lobster bisque, your alligator steak. Enjoy, uh, eat crow or crawfish if you like. Enjoy them in Christ because he put these foods on your menu. And when he looks at this vision, we see a fundamental shift how God now has makes all things clean. As Colossians says, whatever you do to the, do to the glory of Christ, and that is what is important. When we look at this, this concept that no one can judge us on matters of food and drink and how we operate, historically this has been called Christian liberty. We could argue about it. We could have good old family discussions about how we operate in this life. But if it's not explicitly laid down in Scripture, do not do this as a follower of Christ, there's freedom there. We can argue about the principles, how they apply. But there's freedom there. That we, when we feel our conscience bind us, that we feel we honor God if we do this or we honor God if we don't do that, we follow that. Because that's the Holy Spirit working through our conscience through the principles of the Bible. But where there's freedom in Scripture, we have that freedom. Where there is restriction and saying, don't do this, we hold our brothers and sisters accountable and encourage us to follow the law, the, 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 the Scriptures, and follow what God has laid down through Jesus Christ. But that can be hard, can't it? So often, just like the Jewish people like to twist the, the boundary markers to make themselves feel superior to others, we use our freedom to sin. 
We use our freedom to judge others who might be like, oh, they're not as free as us. We use our freedom to glorify our bodies or our appetites rather than glorify God. And again and again, we see in the New Testament saying, we don't use our freedoms for ourselves. We actually use our freedoms to glorify who Christ is. Because within those freedoms, it frees us up to cross all racial barriers, tries to everyone who has ears to hear. Because gospel vision changes earthly perception. It also changed how Peter would preach the gospel. For now Peter is preaching to Gentiles. He not only sees them as not uh, unclean beneath him, he sees them as equals, people who deserve to hear. And because they deserve to hear, he, he feels prompted to share the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see this in verse 34 where he walks into Cornelius' house and what does he say? He says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. What he's saying there is that he, he says God does not determine who's in and who's out by any external criteria, any nation, any, any class, any ethnic identity. These things do not determine who's God and who's not. Instead, God calls men and women from every nation, every class, every, every ethnic background to come and to be his people. And Peter is confirming what we hopefully, all of us, fully know well, that there is no racial barrier to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That all are welcome at his table. That all are called in to receive who he is. So Peter preaches the gospel. Confusing statement in this passage. Right after he says, truly, I see now that God shows no partiality. At the end of verse 34, he says, but in every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. When you read this, people have, tempted to, have been tempted to read this and say, oh, that means people who just do what's right and fear God, no matter what else they believe, they're in, right? That Cornelius didn't need to hear the gospel. He was a good God-fearing Gentile who did what was right, and so he's acceptable to God. Well, that contradicts everything we know from the rest of the Bible. So we can't see it to mean that. What we rather see is that Peter's saying this acceptable is not that, he, that Cornelius is justified by his good works of giving to the poor, of loving uh, God, probably being part of the Jewish community. No, that he's, he's, he's acceptable to God in a comparative manner. That God's actually honoring his good things because God actually wants us to do good. He doesn't want people to do bad. God wants us to be sincere. He doesn't want people to be insincere. And so what Peter's saying is that God actually is honoring the, uh, how Cornelius has been working and living by actually now setting up and preparing him to receive the gospel which everyone needs to hear. Because if Cornelius did not need to receive the gospel, what was Peter doing then? Not the fact that somehow we can be acceptable to God through our good works, but we rather see that everyone, no matter how good they look, Still, if they do not need Jesus, if they don't know Jesus Christ, they need to know him and how he saved them through his life, death, and resurrection. So Peter now preaches the gospel to him because gospel vision changes earthly perception and he sees everyone, everyone, no matter how good they look, no matter how bad they look, no matter how similar they are to you or how dissimilar they are to you, everyone needs to hear the gospel. And that's true for us as well. 
And when we read this, it should change how we declare or proclaim the gospel. It should change how we preach the gospel. That we, it should challenge us to see people as people who need to know Christ. That we look at someone <clears throat> and we're so tempted to judge them by exterior means. That we look at someone and say, man, they look like they have their life together. They're doing so good. They got the big house. The family looks like it's the perfect family. They don't need the gospel. They don't, they don't need anything like that. But if they don't know Jesus Christ, they still stand condemned. They need to know the gospel. Sometimes we look at people and say, man, they're so far out there. They're so different from me. They look kind of scary. Anything. And so we're intimidated and we back down. But we need to know those people too need to hear the gospel if they do not know who Christ is. That the gospel needs to be proclaimed to everyone. When we read this, the fact that God shows no partiality is actually a warning to us. So often we set our traditions, our preconceived notions, we look through the world in the world's lens and we like to predetermine who needs the gospel and who doesn't. Or who we think should come into our church and who shouldn't. And when we do that, we're seeing the world through earthly perception and we're defying and standing against the gospel. Because when we see life and people through those gospel lenses, through the gospel visions, we see people in need, people made in the image of God who need to know how they can have salvation through Jesus Christ. And it should move us to share it, to love them, to proclaim it means that as a church, we need to wash out the danger of being exclusive. Meaning that churches have a tendency, they can do this, they like their small group, they like how things are going, they like the community that's here, and so they maybe they'll get a little like, I don't know if we want anyone else here, it's going to mess up the dynamic. And so they circle the wagons, they circle up and like where we're a little too welcoming of people and might scare people off that way. Probably not. But we like people, and that's good. But there's a danger. There's always a danger when we start to think we can be exclusive and we turn our backs on and say we like our community how it is and it goes against what this is showing, how the gospel should be preached to everyone. And that the gospel means that when we see your life through the lens of gospel, that there's always room at the table. There's always another seat that can be pulled up. There's always room in our family as we welcome people to hear about who Jesus Christ and how he saves us. Gospel vision changes earthly perception. So River Valley Community Church, let's have gospel vision. Let's actually see the world, see people through the lens of the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, born of a helpless faith, lived a life we could not live, lived a life of righteousness standing before God, so that now he can stand in our place, taking our judgment upon himself, so that now we can stand before God with his righteousness, not our own, his standing before God, known by God as his sons and daughters. How he rose from the grave for us, securing our salvation, the life that awaits us, and the life that we have right now. Let's see the world through that gospel. A lens of grace, a lens of forgiveness before through our own earthly perception how the world wants us to operate is not how God calls us to do so. He calls us to see the world through his, through his son who saves us. Gospel vision changed the world. 
It made the church all of a sudden explode from being a Jewish sect now to being an earth-shattering, inviting everyone in mission as God's people grow and grow from every nation, tribe, and world. So we have to ask ourselves, how would gospel vision change us? How would seeing life and people through the gospel change us? How would it change you personally? Every one of us needs to wrestle with that question. How do we need to apply the gospel personally in our lives? Would it change how you see people? Would it change the fact that now we should see people for grace and forgiveness? Humans made in the image of God, made to be loved and made to, be, to hear about who Christ is? Would it change how you treat people? People are worthy of respect and honor. It changes how we stop thinking first and foremost about us and how we get ahead where we look to others before ourselves. Would it change to see, change what you see is most important? Even your family in perspective, does it put what we do on weekends in perspective? Does it change what we see as being valuable and important? We start seeing the world through the gospel. Does it change how we orient our families? Do we start asking ourselves, am I leading my family towards Christ or a little away from Christ? We start asking ourselves, do I lead my family in the ways of the gospel and what it means for us? Or am I leading the family, my family just like any other family that follows the ways of the world? It challenges us. And you see the world through the gospel. We're a rally community church. I would challenge all of us. Let's have gospel vision. For it changes how we see the world. Just from some examples. Earthly perception might look like looking at our plans for a new building and saying, man, when we get in there, hopefully mid-July, maybe in August, when we get in there, we have arrived. We've done it. We can sit back and relax, right? That's what earthly perception might say. But gospel vision says, hey, look at this. Through God's grace, through the giving and generous giving of our body, we have able to do this so that we have secured a tool that can be used for God's kingdom where we can reach new families, spread his gospel kingdom through all these homes in our neighborhood, that we can use this for the good things. On the negative end, earthly perception might look at a small congregation, congregation and say, who are you? Small fry, what are you going to do for God's kingdom? But gospel vision looks upon God's family, no matter how big or no, how, no matter how small, and says, you are part of a world-expanding kingdom. You are part of my family. You are part of God's mission for this planet. You are part of the outpost of heaven on earth. And you have a mission. You have been given a vision to change the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we put that gospel vision on, we see that no matter what it might look like to the world, we have been sent on a mission by God to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And so lives can be changed. Let's have a gospel vision for all we do, for all we think about. Let's be a church that's defined by this gospel vision. As we look towards what God has in store for us and dream big about how we can spread his good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to everyone who has ears. Gospel vision changes earthly perception. Join me in prayer.
Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your, your word and your truth that we can know it and we can grow through it and we can be challenged by it. Lord, I just pray that we can continue